Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Bowshield wasn't satisfied with any of the bike lubes on the market, so they engineered their own. Their research proved that none of the Teflon, silicone, or synthetic formulas held up when exposed to dusty, dirty, and muddy conditions. For that reason, Bowshield T9 is designed to offer long-term lubrication and protection in any environment. Bowshield T9 waterproofs your bike chain, lubricates cables, and prevents rust with its effective all-in-one formula. The paraffin-based lube flushes out dirt and old lubricants, displaces moisture, and penetrates moving parts. Then it dries to a clean, continuous wax film that performs better than Teflon and lasts up to 200 miles. Bowshield T9 is designed to resist picking up dust, dirt, or mud, which makes it a good choice for all riding conditions. This month, Bowshield is giving away a free prize pack to a lucky listener. Go to singletracks.com slash Bowshield to enter and visit Bowshield.com to learn more or click the links in the show notes. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks podcast. My name is Jeff and today I'm going to be sharing an interview I recently recorded with Gareth from the MTB Tribe podcast. Gareth and I chatted a bit about the mountain bike industry, swapped notes about how trail access works in the U.S. compared to parts of Europe, and we also talked about general mountain bike culture. Be sure to check out the MTB Tribe podcast on iTunes and Spotify, or visit the website at mtb-tribe.com. Hi, Jeff. Welcome to the MTB Tribe podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on the show, sir. How are you this morning? Doing well. Thanks for having me, Gareth. You're more than welcome. And um, we were chatting a little bit before we started there, and I'm a big fan of the Single Tracks podcast. I've been listening to that for a number of years, uh, and you guys get on some great guests, a great range of guests. You do bike reviews, everything else. So it's um, it's awesome to have you on. Uh, you, you're one of the reasons why I kind of started the podcast, so not not to, <laughs> not to blow your head up anymore. Right, <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, I'm uh, yeah. flattered. Thank you. <laughs> Uh, so you're in Atlanta at the minute, so it's nice and early for you there, AM. Um, so thanks for coming on. I appreciate you taking the time to do this. It'll be great having a chat with you. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Yeah, I mean, we usually, I feel like I usually do later podcasts later in the day because everybody here is on the West Coast. So this is kind of a nice change. Yeah, cool, man, cool. And Jeff, for people that don't know you, you have the online magazine, singletracks.com, which you launched around 1999 and it's it's been growing really nicely for you it's a really really good online well what, what would you describe it as is it uh it's an independent media outlet something like that yeah our mission is to you know help mountain bikers find the information that they need to have fun on a mountain bike and so yeah we do a lot of things we try to cover the world of mountain biking help people figure out where to ride what kind of gear uh, they might want to use how to ride, you know, just pretty much anything. We're, we love mountain biking and we want to share it with others and help them progress, you know, no matter where they are in their skills at the moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's cool because listening to your podcast and chatting about rules and regulations in the U S 
it's good to listen to that because it's very different from the UK and Ireland, the way certain things work. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll, we'll get into that a little bit, I think. Um, it'll be quite interesting just to see how things differ between yourselves and us here in the UK. Yeah. That'll be cool. Um, but will we chat about the industry? Will we chat a bit about the mountain bike industry first? Yeah, let's do it. That should be fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a big topic, I know, but there's plenty There's plenty going on at the minute in it. So from your perspective, now you guys review bikes and you do a lot of that kind of stuff on your website. Uh, you have independent contributors and stuff that write for you, isn't it? And anybody that hasn't uh, obviously had a look, they definitely need to go and check it out. There's a wealth of information on, on there. But how healthy do you think the MTV industry is at the minute just chatting to these brands and having a relationship with those guys? Well, I mean, it's surprisingly doing well, you know, I mean, despite coronavirus and and everything that's happening in the world and and with the economy, you know, when this whole thing started, yeah, we were, we were super worried that advertisers would dry up that, yeah, the industry would be hurt, but you know, biking has ended up being one of the things that people are able to do relatively safely. You know, people have more time, they're not uh, commuting to work. And so (laughs) it seems like people are the end of the day, they're like, huh, I have an extra hour or two. What can I do? And seems like a lot of them are choosing to ride bikes, not just mountain bikes, but all kinds of bikes. And so, yeah, what we're hearing is bike shops are full. Uh, you know, you can't get a service appointment at a lot of the ones here locally, you know, f- for a while mm-hmm. you drop your bike off and they say, yeah, it'll be ready in three weeks. Um, now they're just, they're not even taking your bike. They're just saying, sorry, like we're full. Really? Yeah, so bike shops are doing really well, um, and then the the manufacturers as well. It seems like a lot of them are selling out. I, I just bought a um, Surly Karate Monkey frame uh, to build up for my daughter, and uh, we ended up, it was like the last one in her size in the whole USA. Um, so it, it sounds like, yeah, the industry is doing well, and, you know, as as someone or as a business that's a part of that industry, you know, as a media company, you know, I just really hope that these companies are able to sort of take advantage of this and sock some of that money away because the industry is really up and down. I mean, there are years when, when the bike industry is not doing so well. And so, yeah, my hope is just that, that yeah, we're able to kind of use this opportunity to really get the industry strong and healthy um, so that, you know, in a few years when people get onto other things that, uh, yeah, companies won't be hurting. Yeah, yeah. It's it's kind of going through a, a bubble almost at the minute. So you would expect that to come down. And it's like you're saying that these companies have things in place to deal with that. Mm-hmm. But they're smart enough, right? They know all this stuff, yeah? <laughs> right. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. I mean, yeah, I think, I think most people do recognize that this is a unique situation. And, it, you know, it's funny on our forums, uh, all the time they're like, you know, new riders and people always starting the sport. And so there is this like sense that mountain biking is always growing. Right. Um, but the fact is it's not, you know, I mean, we can look at data, statistical data that's, that's collected over the years and there are a lot of years when it declines. I mean, despite the fact that we're all really stoked about it and we know a lot of new people who are coming to the sport, there's also a lot of people leaving the sport, um, all the time, you know, due to just, you know, just life, right? Like, you have a family, like you just don't have time to drive, you know, an hour to the trailhead and spend half the day out there. 
So, you know, mountain biking, it's, it, it feels like it's growing a lot, but it, it doesn't always grow. There's a lot of years that it declines. And so, yeah, hopefully people have been, I think people in the industry, they've been around long enough to know this, to know that it kind of ebbs and flows. Um, and so, yeah, we got to, we got to strike while the iron's hot and, and really use this to, to get the industry strong and, you know, these companies that build up, a lot of them don't have really big margins either. I mean, there's a lot of competition in the mountain bike industry. I mean, everybody, it's everybody's dream, right? Is to like work in the industry, to own a bike shop, to own a bike brand. And so, you know, and people are willing to do it for not a lot of money. And so that results in companies that are operating on really thin margins. So yeah, I, I just hope that, that we can use this to, to, get these companies strong so that we can enjoy them for years to come. Certainly. And it was an eye opener. When I came out here to Malta, I started to work in a bike store out here. And it was the first time I had kind of worked in a retail environment in in a mountain bike store. Retail is my kind of background, but Mm -hmm. I did not know how many parts (laughs) and different fittings and different components these brands have to manufacture it is absolutely amazing yeah yeah that is really interesting yeah and like even from a repair side of things the maintenance side was quite a big part of the store here and the number of different problems that people come in with you you couldn't (laughs) think them up you you know you you couldn't think them up and we have two really good mechanics in the store Neil and Joe and they both know their stuff really really well but some of the stuff I'd never heard of, some of the parts people are coming in and showing me in their hand, I was like, what's that? Yeah. <laughs> <You> know, <laughs> right. Bike stores have to carry all these bits. Yeah. And they can't be making a lot of them, right? I mean, if it's something you haven't seen, that's probably because there weren't a whole lot of them made, you know? And, and that is expensive. And if you make some and nobody needs them, like that was a waste of money. Yeah, it is. It is a crazy complicated supply chain. And you know, I, I I really rely on the people in my local bike shop, even as someone who, you know, all day long, all I do is is read about bike stuff and, and write about it. And I still have a hard time finding the right headset for a frame, you know, like I, I can do all the online research and think I have the right one. Um, but, you know, I still go to the bike shop and say, guys, help me out. Like, I have no idea. I want to make sure I get the right part here because, yeah, there are so many so many weird situations with every bike when you're trying to put one together. Yeah. Do you think with the technology of the bikes, like all the new bikes we were getting in there, you know, some of them were, we had a, we had a Mondrager at 13,000 euros. The technology of that bike and a lot of the bikes now, unless you have the specialized tools and you really know what you're doing, you can't work on a lot of that stuff yourself. Mm. Do you think that's the way it's going? Do you think these brands, the technology will half will, will go to a certain level where, where when you want a repair or some form of maintenance, you'll have to take it into your local bike store? I don't know. I mean, I think I think with the um, electric bikes, I, that definitely seems like a possibility. I mean, you know, you think about your iPhone, like there's really not, not a way to, to work on that. I mean, maybe you could like replace the screen on your iPhone and you could tinker like that. But yeah, I mean, these electronics I think are beyond most of our, our capabilities, but I do think 
you know, with YouTube and, and websites and just, you know, being able to look up information in general, I think it is, it does sort of balance that out. You know, I mean, people are able to, to look online and figure things out in terms of repairs. Um, but yeah, the electronics, I think (laughs) that's probably where people are going to draw the line and, and bikes are getting a lot more electronics, even if it's not an electric bike. I mean, if you have the new SRAM, uh, AXS, you know, drivetrain or the, the dropper post and something goes wrong with that. I mean, yeah, it's unlikely you'll be able to, to fix that on your own. You're going to have to send it in or take it to your local bike shop. So yeah, but I think at the same time, people are drawn to mountain biking because of its simplicity, you know? And so as consumers and as people in the industry too, um, I think there's always going to be kind of a a bias toward that toward keeping it simple or at least offering that possibility for people but yeah it is getting more complicated for sure yeah yeah definitely i'd be too scared to work on one of those bikes at that price (laughs) (laughs) right yeah that's a good point i mean if you're if you're spending that much money you're probably not a, a tinkerer anyway because you would i don't know you would build up your own bike maybe i don't know uh yeah um no crazy the stuff's the stuff's getting crazy amazing to see it but this bike weighed nine kilos or something wow <laughs> and it was an xc it was the new i think it was the new podium uh unreal unreal bit piece of kit but um yeah so how about because i've heard you guys chatting on your podcast quite a lot about walmart and their brands of bikes and things like that the cheaper end of stuff now we have got a big kind of conglomerate company here called Go Outdoors. Mm -hmm. Uh, Their parent company is Sports JD, but it's that kind of thing like, uh, you know, they have lots of big outlets. They sell bikes, they sell car accessories, outdoor equipment, that kind of thing. Now, they just went into administration and Sports JD, their parent company, has just come back and said, no, we're not going to put them into administration. I think there's still life in it. So they've kind (laughs) of, I don't know, from accountancy point of view, I don't know how they wangled that, but... (laughs) They have done something anyway to save money. Are you seeing those kind of stores in the U.S. still being popular with bike sales, or do you think that will start to decline a bit? Yeah, that's a good question. I think there's always going to be consumers that want easy access to bikes. And, you know, honestly, a, a, a bike shop is not going to sell anything under here in the U.S., $300, maybe, maybe even $500. Um, and for a lot of people, that's, that's a lot of money. And so, yeah, you can walk into a, a Walmart right now and roll a completely assembled bike, you know, up to the cash register. And, and in a lot of cases you'll get it for under a hundred dollars. That's unreal. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I think it's, it's a good starting point <laughs> for some people. I mean, people, in the industry and maybe even listeners to this podcast will disagree. But, you know, in my opinion, you got, you got to start somewhere and you're not going to convince someone who's never owned a bike or who thinks they just want a bike to get to the store or whatever that they need to spend 300 or $500 or certainly not a thousand or 5,000. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I think I don't see that going away. I think it's a good, a good starter for people. But yeah, I don't know. That's a good question. If those sales are declining, I would imagine that they're doing pretty well. I mean, a lot of what people use those for too is, is kids bikes. You know, if you're, if you're a parent and you, you want a bike for your kid and you don't even know if your kid's going to take to it or not, 
I think it's a good alternative. Yeah. Well, the Go Outdoors guys, I think they sell, well, they sell Diamondback. They sell Caliber, I think. I don't know if you've ever heard of that brand. So they have bikes, you know, over a thousand as well. So they start quite cheap and then they go up over a thousand. So I was actually quite interested or surprised to hear that, to be honest. Yeah. So I was just wondering if you were seeing more people going to their local specialized stores or, but it's probably a different customer base, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, honestly, right now, I think people are getting bikes wherever they can <laughs> They're because they're, they're hard to find. And I don't know if part of that, you know, I've tried to talk to some bike brands and, and understand if they saw a lot of supply chain disruption when this whole thing started um, because, you know, the, the factories in Asia were some of the, the hardest hit and the first hit. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I don't know. I imagine there's there are supply chain issues right now, but demand is, is definitely up. Um, you know, I've, I've heard from a lot of friends, too, who, who are selling used bikes. And, you know, as soon as they put them online, somebody buys it. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's, there's demand from... You know, and this is a more casual rider too. I mean, this isn't the people who are listening to this podcast that are that are buying used bikes or I'm, I mean, a lot of them are, but but I'm thinking more of the the people you know in my neighborhood that are casually interested in cycling. They have some time now and they're like, want to give it a try. So you know, I think those people those people are getting bikes wherever they can. Some of them are are at the dealer, but I'm sure a lot of them are at department stores too. Yeah, good point, good point. Now, I was reading one of the UK industry magazines there. Um, do you want me to read you out some stats from yeah. what they have been to see if it works for you over in the US? Yeah. So they were saying less than 2% of journeys are still taken by bike, hmm. but the average mileage among cyclists has increased. So I thought that was quite interesting. Yeah. They also said that the safety concerns remain the main buffer to increased participation. So I suppose this is covering the board, you know, from commuters, daily commuters to people on mountain bikes. It's the whole, it's the road bikes, it's gravel, it's everything. But less than 2% still, I thought that was pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah, that is, that, that is surprising. Yeah. So they went on to say that some evidence of higher female and over 45 years of age participation, which is good, huh? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, 17% of cyclists bought a bike in the last 12 month period. 2.5 million bike sales in 2019. And 5% of the population bought bikes over lockdown. So, yeah, you can see with that why bike brands are maybe struggling to supply. <laughs> you know, nobody's seen this coming. Right. right. <laughs> uh, but I thought some of those stats were were quite interesting you know and i would you had to pay to go more in depth obviously but i wasn't going to pay two and a half grand to read that report (laughs) yeah (laughs) another thing they were saying which i thought was pretty awesome because since the covid thing the uk has got on board and they're they're trying to make infrastructure better trying to get people riding bikes more they've introduced a 50 pound repair government voucher Hmm which is pretty cool. Yeah. So you register, the bike stores have to register with the government and then you go in and register with the bike store and you get, I'm not really sure how it works, but you get a 50 pound repair uh, voucher. So you can get your old bike repaired that's been lying in the shed for two years or you can get repairs done to your, so I thought that was quite a nice scheme. Yeah. Is that coronavirus related or is this just something that was, was in the works already? 
I'm not sure. I think it's probably came off the back of the Corona thing, to be honest. You know, like I know here in the store, we've seen so many old bikes coming into the store that people were wanting repaired. Mm-hmm. You know, your old full suspension bikes that you'd have bought maybe 15 or 20 years ago for right. like 100 euros. <laughs> <laughs> the ones that the mechanics love to work on. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you know, so we were seeing lots of that coming out of the out of the shed and stuff. Um, so it was maybe to try and get people to, maybe with the lack of supply, maybe to try and get people to spend money on repairing their old bikes. Yeah, yeah, and putting people to work. I mean, that's... That's a big goal of this, you know, with unemployment being what it is. Um, yeah, any industry I think that that they can see is working right now. Yeah, the governments want to support that and, and get people working. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a shame too that that there aren't more bike mechanics. I mean, we had, we had heard this years ago that that was a pretty high demand profession. You know, not a lot of people were, were going into it. There's already a shortage. Um, and, and clearly with the situation now where you can't even get an appointment for service. Yeah. That's in demand. Yeah, for sure. And I, I had a mechanic on the show. That's a good wee while ago now, but, um, yeah, as I said to him, you will never be out of work as a bike mechanic. (laughs) Right. You know, and it's, people think it's easy. It's not, it's a skilled, skilled job. Yeah. I feel like too, it's not. You know, you, you can go, there are schools where you can go and learn to be a bike mechanic, but I feel like so much of it is just experience. I mean, just seeing bike after bike after bike and solving problems and, and gaining that knowledge, you know, um, like you said, there's a lot of weird stuff out there too. And it's like, you're not going to run into it, you know, for a while, <laughs> you know, it could be years before you see this, this one weird part. And then it might be years again before you see it again, but yeah, I feel like it's very experiential. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, like Neil, who's the younger guy that works in the store here, you know, I asked him about his background and stuff and how he got into mechanics because he's never went and taught, been taught mechanics or anything like that. But he was one of these young guys. His dad was into bikes, then he naturally fell into bikes. And he, from a young, young age, started to do work on his own bikes and build his own bikes. So he's been doing it just for the love of the thing from a young age since he could since he could pedal a bike to be honest and that's how he's got his experience but he he knows so much that he must read it he's just got a natural he's just got a real natural knack for it mm-hmm. he's just really into it and i asked him if he could do anything in the bike industry what would he like to do and he said he would like to design bikes the geometry bikes because he's well into his geometry and how things work and stuff and he was telling me about this and that and why he doesn't like this bike and why he doesn't like that bike and it was kind of going over my head (laughs) (laughs) yeah but yeah there's definitely work there so for any young guys listening get tinkering because there's (laughs) going to be a job for you right yeah absolutely yeah for sure now i read a thing the other day and I don't really understand it, and I want to know if you maybe understand it, Jeff. It came out from GT and Cannondale, and they said they were changing their availability and ordering dates for retailers. They were calling it the model year structure. Huh. And they said it was going to help with cash flow, inventory issues for both retailers and suppliers. Um, but I didn't really understand it. Do you know anything about that? Or No, I haven't heard that. I mean, the thing that has been happening the last few years with a lot of brands is, is getting away from model years just to, to make inventory simpler because 
you know, if you're a bike shop and you only have one year to sell the the 2020 bikes, um, you're, you're in, you end up with a lot of old inventory, you know, here come the 2021s mm-hmm. and what do you do with, with the previous one? So I think Santa Cruz was one of the, the first big companies that did that, that got rid of the, the model year paradigm and just sort of said, this is, this is the tall boy. This is the tall boy three, you know, um, and we're going to keep it around for a couple of years until we update it again. So yeah, that, that would be surprising. It, it definitely, I mean, dealers have a hard time. They definitely struggle with um, inventory and cash flow management. I mean, they're they're small businesses after all. And so, yeah, I'd, I'd be interested to to know what Cannondale and GT are doing to sort of help that situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because to be honest with you, we saw we sell Cannondale and GT here in the store, mm-hmm. and I was looking at the 2021 range from Cannondale in February. Like that's crazy crazy <laughs> now we hadn't we didn't have it in the store right but we could look we could look at the models online you know with your your dealer kind of uh, back door into the website you could look at the models online and i'm just thinking that is crazy like we're still waiting on our 2020 bikes some of them being delivered yeah wow and we can go online and look at the 2021 it just it blows my mind you know how do you keep on top of that that kind of stuff you know Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's definitely, it's a cycle and yeah, there's always new things being announced and the bike industry definitely does not sit still and, and just say, yep, we're good. <laughs> the bikes are as good as they're going to get. I mean, that's, that's kind of why we all enjoy it too. I think, um, it can be frustrating for sure, but, but that's why we have such awesome bikes. I think too, is because people are pushing the envelope and, and always trying to, to make them better and, say, wait, wait, we just figured something else out. Here, here's, here's an even better version of that bike. Uh, but it does make it a challenge for those people who are trying to sell bikes. Mm-hmm. Do you think is it too much? Do you think a new model every year is too much? Yeah, I do. I think every year is is pushing it. You know, I think what we're seeing with, with a lot of the brands now, it's maybe, what, a three-year cycle? So every three years they kind of update their bikes and – I don't know. I think it's more exciting too, because they're, they're big updates. They're not just, oh, you know, we, we change the color or we like, you know, tweak the derailleur hanger or something. You know, when these updates come out, they're, they're pretty significant, you know, big geometry changes. Yeah. Adding cool features and things. So yeah, I think every year that's definitely pushing it a little too hard. I, I don't know that, that the technology is, is changing that fast, but, but it is changing. Yeah, because I think from a consumer point of view, you know, it's like, well, if I buy this bike this year, you know, in six months' time, there's going to be a new model. Do I wait? Yeah. Or do I, you know, it's difficult. Like, you know what I mean? It is difficult. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that is a concern that the buyers have for sure. And I don't know. I mean, it's all psychological too, right? I mean, it's, if you buy a bike now and you love it, then yeah, maybe just turn off your phone and, and stop looking at the internet and don't worry about the next one that's coming out. Just enjoy the one you got because obviously at the time you bought it, you enjoyed it and you loved it and that doesn't change at all. Um, but yeah, it's just when we start reading the news and we see what <laughs> other people at the trail are riding that we start getting that, that jealousy 
right? I mean, that's all it really is. Is it's, it's kind of it's jealousy. It's it's FOMO. It's all those things that are bad for us anyway. So whatever we can do to <laughs> turn it off, I think is going to be helpful. Yeah. Well, I'm still on. I'm on a ten-year-old bike, so I'm all right. <laughs> <laughs> nice. See, you haven't bought into that exactly. I'm still twenty-six ounces, dude. Wow. Wow. <laughs> so yeah, what's your secret? I mean, do you when you see these new bikes, do you do you think, oh wow, like I'd really love to have that, or are you you past that point where you just say, you know what, that's that's interesting, but it's not for me. No, you know, it's it was very difficult working in the store. To be honest, oh yeah, especially when you're seeing these Orbea all cams coming in, which are quite well priced. You know what I mean for what you're getting? Beautiful, beautiful bike. Um, yeah, I had to bite my tongue um, and say <laughs> no, I will not get that. <laughs> but I don't know. I'm certainly when I go home now in a couple of weeks, I'm certainly going. I, I really want. I really need to update my bike. You know. Mm-hmm. But it's funny because a couple of years ago, I had the new Hightower and the new Nomad from Santa Cruz to test for a day. Me and my friend took them out for a day. It was only a day, but um, we were out all day on them and they were top spec. They were, you know, high, high end. Mm-hmm. And one was 27.5, one was 29 and we got on them and Con really preferred the 29er. And I preferred the 27.5, to be honest. I think it's just a wee bit more nimble, a wee bit more playful, kind of suited me a little bit more. But I thought, after that day, I thought, how am I ever going to go on my Specialized, which is 10 years old now, and actually enjoy that bike? <laughs> right. You know? <laughs> right, you sheltered well, I... yourself for all this time, and then <laughs> now you've ruined it. That was it. Top of the range, car, you know, seven grand bikes, type stuff you know how am i going to go on a bike like this to be honest you see after 15 minutes on it i said to myself jeff there is not one thing wrong with this bike (laughs) yeah and i think that's what i think that's what keeps me from buying a new bike because i really like that bike and i can't really find anything wrong with it to be honest yeah (laughs) you know you like something to be wrong with your bike you like to feel like you have a project or something you need to solve well you know it's just like I didn't see my I was only on those Santa Cruises for a day and I didn't see a great benefit to my speed or my technique or my skill and maybe it takes longer than that to actually see the benefits I certainly felt the benefits of the bigger wheel and and everything like that but I don't know it just wasn't enough for me to spend that money you know Um, but I am going to have to bite the bullet when I get home now and do something probably (laughs) yeah well your 10 year old bike though i mean i think maybe some of what you're getting at is that it it has a lot more character right like you step onto a brand new seven thousand dollar santa cruz and yeah it it works great it does everything that you know you would expect it to do there's not really anything you would improve but that's it's kind of boring i guess you know i mean it's fun to ride but it's not I don't know. I don't know what it says about you to like buy that bike and, and to have it, you know, just as it is off the showroom floor. Whereas your 10 year bike, you've had all these experiences with it and you've customized it, I'm sure over the years and adjusted it. And, and it's like, it's your bike and it's not something that somebody else picked out. Um, so yeah, maybe that's part of it. I don't know. I don't know, but maybe I'm just stingy. I don't want to spend the money. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the bike industry does not pay well. So, 
Yeah, that's the irony, you know, that those of us that are in the industry um, can't always afford it. And that's that's what those those industry discounts are for. Very true, very true. Um, what do you think about the small brands, Jeff? There are so many brands out there, right? You you could hear about a new brand every day that, that you've never seen before. And, you know, there's just so many brands. Do you think when things start to slow down a little bit, do you think these small brands will struggle? Do you think you'll see a lot of these brands disappearing? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it is it is a hard industry because of all the competition. Yeah, I mean, I've lost track of how many bike brands there are. And, you know, yeah, it's interesting. I, I would expect more to disappear than they do. Some of these companies do hang around for for longer than I would expect. Um, and I don't know what that is. I don't, I, I almost wonder if, you know, these days it's possible to run a business on your own, even on the side, um, and reach customers through the internet and, you know, work with suppliers overseas and, and all these things, you know, that you couldn't do, mm-hmm. you know, say 20 years ago. Um, and so I think part of that is enabling it where, you know, you are able to have this boutique brand and, offer reasonably priced products and and have a global presence where you have a website and you can ship things all over the world. And so, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's part of what's driving it, but I also just think so many of us, you know, we, we get into the sport and as participants and we love it, it's so much fun and and we hate our jobs. (laughs) And so we're like, (laughs) I'm going to quit my job and, and, you know, join the bike industry. I'm going to start a bike brand and, you know, I'm sure there are a lot of stories of people who did that and, and failed and didn't make it. Um, but there are a lot of them that are hanging on and making just enough and, you know, feeding their habit and, and just enjoying what they do more than, you know, they're really profiting. Mm-hmm. You know, there's not a lot of people that have gotten rich in the bike industry. Um, you know, I always say that, like, I don't know, maybe there's a, a billionaire or two in the bike industry. I kind of doubt it. I mean, maybe... Maybe Mike Sinyard from Specialized. He's he's like the only one that comes to mind. Um, that maybe maybe is a billionaire, but you know you look at any other industry, and, and there are plenty of billionaires, plenty of people that have made a lot of money in it. But in biking, I think we're all just kind of doing what we do because we love it, and um, you know we're gonna we're gonna stick around as long as we can. We get paid in lifestyle, not in dollars. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, but it's cool. Uh, it's cool, um, and it's an amazing community to to be involved in. And I'm sure my listeners are freaking scunnered listening to me saying that. But you know, it is here we have a great community. I don't know what it's like in the states, but I'm sure it's the same. You know, the community is just amazing. Everybody's very helpful. And uh, do you have that kind of thing in the states? Yeah, with the community. I mean, yeah, I think it's awesome, and it's. What's interesting is it is different no matter where you go. Um, you know, where I live, it's, it's a fairly urban area. Um, so not a lot of access to, to trails locally. Um, but there's, there's a group of us that gets together and we ride, you know, wherever we can find trails in town. And, um, you know, most of the, the guys I ride with, it's a actually a really diverse group as well. You know, you've got, people who work in construction and you've got professors at the local university and, you know, just, it brings together a really interesting group. 
Um, and yeah, that's, that's part of what I love about mountain biking. But then if you go to, you know, somewhere else, um, even in the U S you're going to see a different, you might see a, a lot of, um, of athletes or, uh, I don't know, for lack of a better term. And, and I don't mean this disparagingly, but you know, the more of the bro culture, um, can be found in, in certain areas, um, and in other areas, it might be the after work crowd, but yeah, the community I think is, is really cool because bikes are a common commonality, you know, and, and whenever I travel, um, yeah, I, I always feel welcomed by the bike community, even if, if I'm not necessarily like those people, um, at least we have, we have bikes in common. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, it's very cool. You can jump on a bike and do all your business meetings on the trail. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> Let's chat about trails because it's very different in the States to what it is in Ireland and the UK. Now, in Ireland especially, we have seen a massive growth in trail centres. So in the north and in the UK where, I, where I'm basically based, the trail centres are kind of owned by your local councils. So your your taxes and stuff like that go into paying for these trails. And the majority of the trails are free. Uh, they're maintained by the council and by just volunteers. Um, and if anything, you maybe have to pay a car park charge or something, but it's very, very small. Um, and then there's a good number of privately owned parks and stuff opening with up, uplifts and things like this. But other than that, it's kind of free. You don't really need to pay for it. You can go where you want. You can ride where you want. And even in Scotland, you can basically ride over a farmer's field if you wish um, because there's a there's kind of a, a right-of-way law. But it's very different in the States. Is it free to ride most trails? Do you need permits to ride? How does it work over there? Yeah, I mean, it's I guess it's complicated. It, there's, there's a definite patchwork of regulations and and things like that. You know, we do have, we have plenty of land that is government owned and and managed where uh, mountain biking exists, you know, at the federal level and the state level and even down cities. A lot of times we'll have parks and things where mountain biking is allowed. And, and yeah, like, like in your situation, most of them are free to use. There might be a small fee um, for parking, but yeah, there's a lot of that. And that's, to me, that's, like what I think of when I think of mountain biking and, and part of that maybe is because I started riding a long time ago, you know, 20, 30 years ago before sort of this, for lack of a better word, commercialization of trails, mm-hmm. um, that we're kind of seeing now. And so yet yeah, now though, we are, we are seeing more of these, uh, privately owned bike parks opening up, you know, ski resorts converting over, um, but what's interesting with ski resorts is um, a lot of them are own, on federally owned land. So they, they have a lease, you know, they're allowed to operate there, but they don't own the land. And so um, a lot of those you can ride. If you, if you want to pedal up the hill and ride back down the trails, you can do that for free. You don't need a permit. You don't um, need to pay anything. But um, if you want to use their lifts, if you want to use their li- uplift service, um, then you do pay for that. Um, and so, you know, 99% of people are going to pay uh, for the privilege to do that. And then the other thing that I'm seeing that kind of bothers me, but I understand it, um, is the rise of these these 
private bike parks and not necessarily a lot of people are building trails on their their private land and they're for the use of like say you know a neighborhood or um we're even seeing like you know these these mountain bike resorts pop up like little cabins and things where they have their own trails that are not open to the public you can only ride them if you're staying there or whatever um and to me that i don't know the to me, that kind of is against the ethos or my understanding of the ethos of mountain biking, where you buy the mountain bike and then you're good. Like, <laughs> you know, you don't have to keep, you know, paying to ride your bike. You just, you can go wherever your bike takes you. Yeah. It's like having green fees or something on a golf course. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so I don't know. I mean, fortunately there's not, there's not a ton of those situations, uh, yet, but whenever I run into one, I'm like, ah, that's frustrating. You know, I wish I could just ride wherever I want, but you know, at the same time we've got property rights here in the United States. And you know, if you own land, that's, it's up to you what, what to do with it and who you're going to let on your land and how they can use it. And so, um, but fortunately we have plenty of, of government land where mountain biking is allowed that, that we can go and access. Yeah. I suppose it's that old scenario where you you only hear the bad news. You never hear the good news. You know, when you're watching these YouTube videos and all of a sudden the riders get pulled over by a park ranger or something and they have to, you know, they have to show these permits and stuff. <laughs> so, yeah, that was interesting. Um, as far as your trails go, Jeff, are you seeing the number of users growing? Yeah, definitely. I mean, especially the last few months, um, with, with people being stuck at home and, and looking for something to do. I think in a lot of ways, it's going to be a good thing. Ultimately, you know, several years down the line, um, one of the really interesting situations here, um, locally is during lockdown, you know, all the kids were out of school and, um, I'm seeing trails and jumps and ramps and all kinds of things popping up all over the place and kids are building trails illegally. I will note, um, you know, on land that they do not own and they do not have permission uh, to be building on. But yeah, so the, a, a pump track basically appeared in one of our local parks uh, that's owned by the city. And these kids worked really hard. Um, I think they were, they were teenagers dug up dirt and, and made some jumps and turns and things. And, it became really popular. I mean, all of a sudden there are 20 kids, you know, taking laps on this little pump track. And this is something that, you know, the city didn't even know that that people wanted this. And all of a sudden you're seeing, you're seeing the demand for it. And, you know, again, this was illegally built and nobody had permission to do it. And the city, my understanding is the city came and said, we're going to have to tear this down because it's unsafe. The kids had dug holes uh, to get their dirt um, to build it. And some of the parents went back to the city and said, Hey, uh, if we make this safe, if we like fill in the holes, do you guys have to tear it down? And the city said, no, we don't have to tear it down if, if you can fill in the holes. So these dads got truckloads of dirt, brought it in, wow. filled in the holes. Um, and the, the pump track is still there. And so, and, and my son loves riding it. And I mean, pump tracks are awesome. Um, I think. And, and one of the things like every, every town needs a pump track cause it's just amazing 
to see that all ages can use them, you know, even kids that, that aren't even pedaling on their bikes, the kids with the little scoop bikes, and all the way up to adults. We see people, they're riding their bikes through the park, and they always stop and, and watch. And I always tell them, I say, go for it. Give it a try, you know. I mean, these are just little jumps. You can ride it as fast or as slow as you want. And a lot of them do, and they're like, wow, this is this is amazing. And it's the kind of thing, too, where it doesn't take up a lot of space, and it's kind of a gateway drug to mountain biking. Once you do it, you're like, okay, this is fun. I can ride my bike off-road, and I can kind of build the skills and wait until I'm ready to tackle a real trail. But, but yeah, we're, I mean, we're seeing that, that the trails are way crowded, and I think because of that, we're going to see people demanding more trails because – you know, that's the irony is right now we're, we're trying to stay apart. We're trying to like, you know, give each other more space and, uh, we need, we need more trails to do that. And so uh, I'm hoping there's going to be a, a little boom, you know, a couple of years down the line where we see all these new trails opening up because people demanded them. People bought these bikes during pandemic and, and they're like, wait, now where do I ride it? You know, I don't want to go to the the, the one trail in town that's always so crowded. There's just too many people. We need, we need more trails to be able to spread out. Yeah. It can only be a good thing, really. Yeah. You know, it'll be interesting. I think it'll be interesting this Christmas to see how bike sales go with kids yeah. getting into it over the over these times. I think it'll be interesting to, to see, like especially what you were saying with the kids getting stoked on the pump track. It'll be interesting to see if they write their letters to Santa and uh, ask for you know, not your normal basic bike. If they ask for something a little bit better, you know, yeah, to get into mountain biking, like how cool would that be? Because we need that, right? The industry needs that. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, right, all the kids that I saw at our local pump track, yeah, just riding all kinds of stuff. A lot of them, you know, bikes that are way too small for them. Their parents hadn't mm. bought them a new bike in a few years and, and <laughs> others, you know, riding hand-me-downs that are in really bad shape and, you know, probably are going to be tough to repair. And so, yeah. And, and you hear the kids, it's funny too, to like hear the kids talking to each other about the gear and, um, you know, they, they really don't know a whole lot, but they do kind of know when they need something better. And yeah, most of them are, are thinking about that. It seems like, so yeah, hopefully, hopefully we see that, that they continue it. I mean, that's, I guess that's my fear is that once this is over and once, you know, sports start back up, right. I mean, team sports are, are pretty much canceled at this, this point. And so, yeah, once soccer is back and baseball and, and all that stuff, are, are these kids going to still want to bike or, or are they just going to put the bike in the garage and, and forget about it? Yeah. Yeah. It'll be interesting. And I think Christmas might be quite a good measurement for that. Yeah you know, or possibly the following summer or something, you know, this time next year kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it'll be very interesting. Now, I also wanted to chat to you, Jeff, because I listened to one of your recent podcasts. You were reviewing bikes, and I want your opinion on this. You got a bike from Canyon, mm -hmm. and obviously they're a straight kind of business-to-consumer company. Your experience seemed very good in that, uh, the unboxing experience. Yeah, yeah. What do you think of that as far as industry goes? Do you think that's a way some brands will end up going? Um, because you just touched on that Trek started to do it over the time when people couldn't go to bike stores and stuff. They started to deliver straight to consumers. What's your feeling about that for the industry? 
industry as a whole? Man, it's a tricky one for sure. I mean, I'm I'm coming at this from an internet standpoint. Um, you know, we launched singletracks.com on the internet um, in 1999. We, we had actually had uh, some other websites in like 98. So, you know, pretty early uh, adopter of the internet. Yeah, so I, I'm a believer in the internet model, <laughs> you know, and it's, to me, it is frustrating that, that it is so difficult, at least like consumers don't have a choice about, um, how they, how, how they can buy certain bikes from certain brands. But I also, I understand the perspective of the local bike shop and, you know, my experience with the Canyon, you know, obviously I'm, I'm very comfortable with putting a bike together, assembling it, um, knowing if it's working properly. Um, but I also know that not everyone is right. Not everyone is going to feel confident about pulling a bike out and making sure that it's safe for them to ride and that they've <laughs> assembled it properly or, you mm-hmm. know, I mean, you don't even know too, if, if there was a manufacturing issue, um, you know, it's good to have someone give it a look over and make sure that it's, it's fine. So, yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess for me, it's good to have choices for people because everybody is different in terms of their, their comfort level and their skill level. And so, yeah, I, I don't think we'll ever go to all bikes online. I don't think we'll ever go back to, you know, you can only buy a bike in a, in a dealership. So mm-hmm. yeah, it's good to have options. Yeah. It was interesting because I had one of the local stores on from Dublin expert cycles. And, you know, we've seen, uh, we've seen stores close at the start of this year and the end of last year in Ireland, you know, that your small local stores close. And, I was chatting to them about this issue and um, they sell Yeti and stuff, lovely, lovely store, but their maintenance side of things is very, very big and it's growing year in, year out. And I was asking them about this. I was saying, like, how do you feel when you get a YT or a Canyon into the store (laughs) that's brand new or whatever and you're asked to set it up or you're asked to work on it? And it really surprised me because he said, I think it's brilliant. I I think it's really good because... We will set the bike up properly for him. We'll get the geometry set up. We'll get the suspension set up. We'll get everything working properly for him. And then when it needs something else, it'll come back to us. Yeah. So, you know, and it got me thinking in a way that how can the small store benefit from brands like this? Because you do get a good bit of savings, right? You know, the consumer saves maybe, what, five or 600 euros or dollars or whatever Mm -hmm. from buying these bikes. And I was thinking, well, would it be possible in the future that Canyon or YT set up something with their local dealer so the bike gets delivered to the dealer? Or there's something set up where the customer can take the bike into their local dealer with a voucher or something to get it set up properly or to get maintenance done on it. Do you think, is that maybe a possibility or something they should be looking at? Yeah, for sure. There's a lot of really cool models that we're seeing in terms of, I mean, there's like mobile repair services here in the U.S. too, where, you know, a, a big part of a bike shop, their expense is their space, you know, they're paying rent and utilities every month. And and so, yeah, if, if what they're doing more of is service, if they're that's a big part of their business, then, you know, a lot of people are rethinking that. Like, well, maybe, maybe we just need to have a van and we go around and work on bikes at people's houses for them and we can save money that way and, and be a, a healthier business. 
Um, and then they're working with these direct-to-consumer brands as well, where one of these mobile services will show up to your house with the bike. They'll assemble it there, you know, in your driveway for you, answer questions about it. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of interesting models and, you know, but that, that doesn't take away from the fact that it's, this is going to be a painful transition. This has been a painful transition for, yeah. for shops that are used to selling uh, bikes and making a margin on them and, and, you know, relying on that income and to see that, you know, slowly disappearing is tough and it requires adjustments. And, you know, a lot of shops have closed. I mean, where I live, we had, you know, within, within like a five mile radius of my house, we've had three or four shops close in the last few years, um, to where now there is no bike shop within, (laughs) within five miles of my house. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's frustrating and, and, I wish, I wish it was different. And, but what's funny is people, a lot of neighbors are asking because they're getting into biking again, or they're dusting off a bike in their basement. Um, they're asking me, where can I go to, to get my bike worked on? Um, because there is no shop. It turns out there are a lot of people wrenching from their houses. Now I've got a number of contacts, uh, where, yeah, people are, are doing it from home. A lot of these people, they formerly owned one of the local bike shops. I know one of the guys in particular, um, he was the owner of the bike shop and he had to close it down, but he's still doing repair from home. And so, yeah, we're seeing, we're seeing a lot of people adapting to this. And I think, I think it'll, we'll see it for a few more years, but I think eventually, hopefully it'll stabilize where, you know, we've got a good mix of online and in-person bike sales, but man, I wouldn't want to be a dealer, to be honest, just even under the old system where, uh, you know, you did rely a lot on bike sales because bikes are expensive. I mean, to buy, uh, you know, your inventory for the year, that's a lot of cash to put up and a lot of risk too, that you're going to end up with a weird size or a weird color or whatever that nobody wants to buy. Yeah. And it always happens, right? There's always one color that people just don't want. Yeah. And the, the brands are pushing the bikes on you, right? They're, if you're a dealer, they're saying, Hey, order a bunch of these. They're going to be great. People, they're going to fly off the, off the showroom floor. And yeah, there's a lot of pressure there to, to make the right call on how many bikes to order and, and in what color and size run. I mean, we can't even do that with (laughs) t-shirts, you know, like we sell t-shirts on our website and I'm frustrated that like, Oh, we didn't get enough mediums or, or yeah, we have too many double XLs and it's like, that's only a $5 t-shirt that, that we bought. So I can't imagine with a bike, I, I, I would want to just be done with it anyway and focus on, you know, service and the things that are maybe a little more predictable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then people don't understand. I think, um, when you work in the bike store, you certainly do. When you add sizes, colors, wheel sizes yeah into the mix man you're spread to have is unbelievable yeah and so many so many models yeah i mean just just mountain bike models you know like you you're a trek dealer and you want to you want to have a mountain bike in case a customer comes in and says i need a bike to ride on the trail well there's like 12 probably different mountain bikes and then different builds within that uh, you know, at different price points and man, that's, it just seems impossible to, to order the right things, predict exactly what your customer is going to want and then convince them to buy it. You know, a lot of, you hear a lot of that customers 
walk out of a shop with something that's not quite what they wanted uh, because, you know, either the salesperson really pushed it because they're trying to get that bike out the door or just because there was nothing else available. You know, it's like, well, you can get this one. It's not quite what you want, uh, but otherwise you're going to have to wait, you know, months or whatever for us to get it in. Yeah, that's it's a tough situation. Yeah, it's difficult. And I think I think we're seeing the brands maybe combating it a little with a lot of them now are only doing, on certain models certainly, are only doing 27.5 wheels in the small, maybe the medium. Um, and then medium, large, XL, they only do the 29-inch wheel. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The wheel size thing, how, are you, how do you think about that? Yeah, I, I, think, I think people are less focused on it than they had been, you know, when these wheel sizes were new. And, I mean, yeah, we used to talk about bikes like, that's a 29er on the website and you know that's kind of how we would categorize them and it's like people don't care about that anymore right they they want to know like what is a bike intended to do what kinds of trails uh, is it intended for or or yeah what is the sizing like how does it fit um so yeah i think i think wheel size is less of a sticking point for people now i mean you know the only time i really think about it is just in terms of like my own quiver and like, Oh man, if I have, if I have bikes with multiple wheel sizes, that means I got to have a bunch of different tubes and tires and like, I can't swap them between bikes and stuff like that. But you know, that's just a sort of a practical consideration, you know, but otherwise, yeah, I don't care. The Canyon that I have in for test is a 27.5 and, um, you know, all my bikes are 29ers and I was, I was out for like sort of my first big test ride with it and I got a flat, you know, it ships with tubes, which I didn't realize I probably should have, should have checked ahead of time. Um, but I found myself out on the trail with only a 29er tube in my pack and, you know, <laughs> that's when wheel size gets frustrating and, and you're aware of it. But other than that, you know, it's all about like, does the bike ride well? And, and that one does the spectral. It rides great. feels really good. And you know, I don't, I don't really care what the wheel size is just until I have to change a tire. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And you're quite tall, Jeff, aren't you? So you normally ride quite big bikes anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I do. I mean, that probably plays into it some, and you know, my, my wife is, is a good bit shorter. And so it's hard for her to find, you know, a 29er bike that fits. And so it totally makes sense that the brands would, you know, adjust the wheel size based on the frame size. Um, cause it doesn't make sense to p- try to put a, a 29er wheel on a extra small frame. In a lot of cases, you're, you're going to make a lot of compromises in that. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Now this, uh, um, just looking at our time here, I don't want to keep you too much longer. You've been in the industry a long time, Jeff, and I want to ask you, how has it changed over the years, and do you prefer it now to back in the day? <laughs> yeah, that's that's an interesting question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, first of all, I, I especially in the early years, I I didn't feel like I was part of the industry. Um, and, and I still, even today, I kind of feel that way. I feel like kind of an outside observer. So yeah, as an observer of the industry, it's, it's certainly changed, you know, trade shows and things like that. Like the way that, that the industry would come out with new products and promote them and get them into stores and sell them as, has changed a ton. 
But I, I think the thing that stayed the same is you've just still got people who are really passionate uh, that are in the industry. And, you know, if as someone, as, as an outside observer, especially as a consumer, a lot of times I think people get the idea that these bike companies exist to make money and they're just trying to, you know, convince us to, to upgrade all the time so they can have, you know, more fried chicken at the end of the day. But like, I, I don't think that's the case just based on the people I've met over the years. They're just all really passionate and, and they want, they want people to have fun and they want people to get the best performance that they can out of bikes. And, and, you know, I think that part is, is never going to change. You know, I, I don't think there's maybe a sense that like there's been a corporatization of the bike industry. I mean, I think that that happens probably to all industries over time, but yeah, for sure. You know, you go and you meet these people that work at these companies and they're, they're super genuine and really passionate and just very casual too. I mean, there's, there's not a lot of talk of ROI and, you know, all these business terms, like people are really, you know, and sometimes that's frustrating to me, right. As, as someone who relies on advertising, it's like, guys, come on, like, let's be more professional here and, and let's, let's talk budgets and let's, you know, but, but people, yeah, I think people are, are in it because they enjoy it. And so, yeah, that's interesting. And I, I don't think the one question that I always have is, is the technology changing more rapidly now than it, than it did, you know, 10 or 15 years ago. And I don't know. What, what is your sense? Do you think, do you think it's been changing more rapidly or do you think we've always sort of had the same level of, of new tech coming out? I think in certain aspects it has, yes. But I think to be honest, we will see a slight slowdown in that. You know, I think a lot of the technology now that's coming out is, is expensive. So it just doesn't cater to such a large a large section of, of the industry. Mm-hmm. Obviously, I'm on a 10-year-old bike as we're chatting, but I'm still an aluminium guy. I don't think I would go, I would go carbon, to be honest. I don't think, I just don't think the money difference is, it's too much, it's too expensive for the, the difference in weight and stuff and other things you get. So I still think I would like the aluminium. I also like a bit of flex. I feel through my bike too. But a lot of these drivetrains that are coming out that are, you know, super expensive and stuff, I think they're not for everybody. And I think out of all the technology that's came out recently, the one thing I didn't understand, and I still don't have one on my bike, by the way, is a dropper post. Hmm. When those came into mainstream and I was like, why would you need one of those? (laughs) And then when I rode a bike with one, I was like, how do I ever ride a bike without one of these? (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. That's been really good. The one-by drivetrains, I think, are really good as well. They just simplify things, make things easy. But I heard you guys reviewing a uh, derailleur, a hydraulic derailleur, rear derailleur. Like, that to me is super new. I've never seen that before. Yeah. Yeah. Really unusual. Yeah. And that... Review. I guess by the time this podcast comes out, um, we'll have a review up on that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's just cool to see people pushing the envelope. And, you know, I think in a lot of industries, the reason you push the envelope is, is again, to make more money. Um, but in the bike industry, part of it is like 
winning races, you know, which is a weird, weird goal to have, right? Is like people want to go faster and, you know, that drives a lot of the technology development and people are trying weird stuff and, um, a lot of it doesn't work out. A lot of it never sees the light of day. The product, you know, is, is never available. Exactly. Um, and sometimes it does and it flops and, you know, there's probably, there's plenty of examples of that. Um, but in the end, I feel like, yeah, we're getting a lot better stuff. I mean, dropper posts are a perfect example of something that, yeah, it seems so unusual. Like, why would you need that? Mm. Um, but then you try it and you're like, okay, yes, this, this actually makes it a lot more enjoyable. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, you know, from technology and the standpoint of that, I think it will always push forward and as always filters down from the EWSs and the UCI World Cup and stuff. And obviously that makes it onto the shop floor at some stage. But I think from a geometry point of view and the thing like the dropper post, from a safety aspect and a, a confidence aspect, I think it's really good because it makes you enjoy your weekend warrior rider or, you know, it makes you enjoy the experience so much more. Yeah. Because you're just more stable. You feel better if the bikes fit it properly for you and your suspension sags correct and everything else. You just, you can go faster. You feel better. You feel more stable. You enjoy it more at the end of the day. Uh, like the funny thing, the funny thing was when I asked people about, I sent out to, to my subscribers of the podcast, I sent out a question one time and I asked them, what's the one thing you enjoy most about mountain biking? And a large, large percentage was being out in nature. I was quite surprised by that because for me, it's that adrenaline buzz I get from it. It's that pushing yourself a little bit more each time. That's why I really do it, to be honest. The nature thing's a awesome, awesome, you know, part of it as well. But the adrenaline thing for me is really, really up there. And if you have these bikes and these these slacker head angles and stuff that give you more confidence, I think it's only a good thing. I think it keeps people in the sport, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we'd all be hiking, I guess, if <laughs> if, uh, <laughs> if all we cared about was the nature part of it. Um, and yeah, biking is, it's fascinating because there is so much to it, you know, in terms of skill and, um, you know, working on bikes and equipment, like, yeah, there's, there's a lot going on and it's the kind of thing that could take somebody a lifetime, um, to really explore it. And, you know, we're all trying to get better and, you know, nobody is, nobody is an expert, you know, unless you're, unless you're like Aaron Gwynn or, or somebody like that. But, you know, the rest of us are not, and we're all working to get better and the bikes are helping us do that. Um, and so, yeah, I think, I think it's an awesome time to be a mountain biker and I'm really proud to, to be a part of the sport. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's the community around is amazing and it's guys like yourself and, and everybody else that's really pushing it and getting information out there and keeps everybody engaged with it. I think's really, really good. And your YouTube channel is really good as well. Well, Jeff, I didn't realize you had such a big YouTube uh, channel there with so many videos and bike reviews and everything on there. It's really, really cool. I checked out a couple of days ago. I didn't even realize you don't mention that in your podcast <laughs> that you have a YouTube yeah. channel. Yeah, man. Yeah, it's one of those things we wish we could do more. And yeah, so we, we don't push it a lot. But yeah, we do try to post bike reviews on there and uh, trying to figure it out a little bit.
Yeah, no, it's very, very cool. Uh, one last question before I let you go. What do you see the future like for MTB, the scene in the industry? You think it's still going to grow and does it need that growth? Yeah, um, I think I think it will ebb and flow. I, I don't think we're like on a, you know, steady, steady upstream uh, type of graph right now, um, honestly. But I do think, I do think, that we should be trying to grow for one reason, you know, I, this is an interesting question because a lot of, a lot of our readers push back when we talk about, when we post stories about, you know, how, how are, how can we grow the sport of mountain biking? A lot of people are content to just say like, why do we need to grow it? You know, like I'm, I'm fine. I don't need a bunch of people on the trails. I don't want to share the trails with people. It's, it's good where it is. And I think, for me, I've, I've gotten to the point where, you know, I enjoy mountain biking. I enjoy the community and the lifestyle so much that I want to share it with other people, right? I don't want to be selfish. And so I think for that reason, yeah, I think growing mountain biking is important, but yeah, I mean, it's not for everybody and it's, it is a, a difficult sport to, to start. You know, I think that's one of the challenges with mountain biking. You know, I can be as passionate as I want about it. But when I'm trying to convince someone who's never done it before, they're looking at a lot of barriers, you know, they're looking at the cost, like we talked about, and Mm -hmm. they're looking at, you know, access to trails, you know, like, okay, I I bought a bike, but now I have to get a rack for my car and I have to, you know, spend all this time driving there and paying for gas and, and all that kind of thing. So it's, I think that's one of the challenges and maybe that's why mountain biking doesn't just, you know, take off and and grow like crazy. You know, it's been kind of a steady thing. It's like, you know, a good year is, is mountain bike participation goes up 5% in a year. Um, but then there are plenty of years where it goes down 5%. And so, yeah, I mean, I think to break out of that cycle, we definitely need to, to find ways to make the sport more accessible And for those of us who, you know, are just participants, like we just ride trails. I think the biggest thing we can do is just be welcoming to other people, you know, like, yeah, be welcoming to them at the trail, work with your local club to, to get trails built because yeah, it's a great sport. And, and if, if you enjoy it, like, why don't you want to share it with other people and and let them enjoy it as well? Yeah, no, for sure. Um, and uh, you know, it's one of those sports where I think, you can arrive at the car park and the car park looks full and you're like, oh no, <laughs> this place is going to be rammed. But once everybody goes their separate ways and everybody gets spread out over the mountain, you can even go up there and not see anybody. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, and it's really good. And there's so many sports, kind of lifestyle sports like surfing, which is very different. And I think mountain biking is cool because you can have more and more people in it, but there's enough space for everybody, you know. Yeah. And there's all, I mean, there's all different kinds of people, you know, it does tend to attract uh, more introverted people, um, that are, are not into the team sports and things like that. And so, yeah, there can be that mindset where I, I do mountain biking cause that's my like alone time. And so, yeah, I want to be on my own, but then there are plenty of extroverted people that, that are there for that community and, and they want to see more folks out at the trail. And that's the great thing. You can, you can have it both ways. I mean, you, you can choose where to ride and when to ride and that kind of thing. So I think, I think just we all benefit from, 
a healthy industry at the very least, you know, so we can get parts for our bikes and we can get our bikes repaired and, you know, it just kind of keeps the whole thing moving, um, when, when we are growing. Yeah. Well said, sir. Well said. Well, listen, Jeff, it's been absolutely awesome having you on the podcast. I really do appreciate you coming on. It's been great chatting to you. And uh, I could chat to you for another 10 hours, to be honest, because you're a wealth of information. <laughs> right. Yeah, same. Thanks for having me, Gareth. And yeah, I really, really enjoy seeing what you're doing with the MTB Tribe podcast. And uh, yeah, it seems like you have a lot of helpful resources for others as well. Yeah, well, that's what we try and do. And I, I kind of always try and say it's about getting people off the sofa onto the saddle. And uh, may that be, you know, take, getting a land a bike from a friend or digging your bike out of the shed or something. Because that's what I basically done to get back into it. You know, one of my good friends who's been biking for a long time, I was having knee issues. And he said, look, go and get that old bike of yours out of the shed. Not the, not the one I'm on now, but, uh, you know, a, a rigid. Mm-hmm. And we'll go... <laughs> And we'll go and we'll go for a ride. And I was hooked one day on it again. I was hooked because I come from being mixed back and I was just totally hooked again. Yeah, so great. it's amazing, man. It's amazing. So thanks so much for what you do, Jeff. I really do appreciate it. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.